Welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Uh, Rick, this is the day it went down, uh, just as I think I predicted. The Republican repeal and replace plan is now, we can officially call, dead. So, yes, it is It is gone. It is not going to happen. Uh, the, they've made formal that they can't repeal and replace. Repeal and delay also seems to be problematic. Of course, that was going to be hard uh, from the get-go. Uh, President Trump is throwing out a bunch of different strategies. Uh, we know from previous uh, interviews that uh, he'd be very angry if this happened. So we'll see what, what anger looks like. But we're also seeing the, the Republican Party turn inward. Because as much as this is a victory for Democrats and uh, for the resist movement and anyone who was trying to preserve Obamacare, this was the conservative movement turning against the Trump administration. This was a problem in their own party. And how they react to this will be fascinating because there's a new power center emerging that is independent of the White House and independent of Mitch McConnell and the, and the establishment Republicans. This is, this is a new dynamic that Trump hasn't had to deal with yet. Okay, I want to try to get to the bottom of how we got here and what's going to happen next. Also, some very interesting comments uh, coming out of the White House that we have to talk about. Uh, yesterday, I almost fell out of my chair in a White House briefing, which is very hard to do because I'm kind of in there between we wouldn't have seen it because it wasn't on camera. You could have fallen; um, it would have been okay. Yes, it was an off-camera briefing, fortunately, and I did not actually fall out of my chair, but it but it almost happened. Uh, but also, we have a very interesting discussion coming up with Josh Green, who is the author of this new book about Steve Bannon. And what is interesting here is uh, some some very colorful uh, anecdotes and language coming out of, of this book. But also, uh, Josh is a very good reporter. Uh, actually spent a lot of time with Steve Bannon. Bannon uh, cooperated essentially uh, with, with this book, agreed to, uh, to, to, to some interviews and very eager to, uh, to talk about him with Adam. And he probably has a better perspective on where Bannon is now and all this than yeah. anybody because few of us actually get to spend much time with Steve Bannon. Yeah, it's remarkable. I, I look, look forward to talking to him. But, but, but first on this uh, implosion of the repeal and replace thing, first of all, as, as you and I discussed earlier this morning, one of the things that uh, shocked me is you have Mike Lee and Jerry Moran came out last night and said they were against the bill. That effectively killed the bill because there were no votes to spare. Uh, I asked the White House uh, to senior official over at the White House, did you get a heads up that uh, the president's top legislative priority was going to be, you know, essentially annihilated uh, with this with this move? And I was told absolutely not. There was no heads up coming from these two Republican senators. Uh, just a few minutes ago, I, uh, Rick, I got a I got I got a call from an aide to, to Senator Moran saying, actually, we did tell them. <laughs> so I asked you did. So when did you tell them? And this aide to Senator Moran said a couple of minutes before Ooh, the announcement nice. went out. I think that qualifies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they probably sure. didn't know who to call, so give them, sure. give them some credit and, there. And, wow. and, and the call did not go from the senator himself. It went from the senator's chief of staff. So anyway, yeah. it just it's just a sign. I mean, it's you know, it's it's really quite remarkable. But the president has already reacted to all this. We heard from him on Twitter, and uh, what he said seemed to be hinting towards a possible war with Republicans uh, that brought this thing down. Um, he said, we were let down by all of the Democrats. Of course, they were all sure. against it. And a few Republicans. And then he adds, most Republicans were loyal, terrific, and worked really hard. So I guess the implication there is that those who did not support it were not loyal did not work very hard and weren't terrific and were not terrific. which really stings if you're if you're Donald Trump only out insults. It, it, look, this is 
utterly shocking but not surprising if you know the dynamics, right? You know that conservatives have wanted a, a clean repeal and replace. Uh, but the, the problem with this from the beginning has been that they didn't know what the replace would be. And there was no consensus on that. And they didn't really want repeal as a party be, without knowing what that next step was. This was an academic exercise when you, when you put this on President Obama's desk and you passed it all those 60-something times. This was different. This was the rubber meeting the road. And, and John, I mean, you tell me, you cover the guy, you're there all the time. President Trump was out of this equation almost entirely. He did not play a leading role in any of this. Was I, did I miss something? He's having this dinner even with, with senators last night. They weren't even the senators on the fence, and then that's when it tanks. He was in Paris six time zones away when they came and unveiled the latest compromise last week. Where was President Trump on this? Well, the president, of course, was very engaged when this bill or the version of it that passed the House. Yes. I mean, he had uh, members of Congress down at the White House, sometimes multiple times a day, the entire Freedom Caucus. Um, he had uh, – I mean, he was, he was very engaged. He was out there publicly on it when it passed. He had that big celebration sure. in, the, in the Rose Garden. Um, he was very engaged. Then something happened. I mean, you remember when it, it, it got out that he said that the House bill was mean? And that was a conversation with senators, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. So once he started, got involved, yeah, he, he, he dumps all over the deal that he helped uh, broker. And then it seemed like the senators basically said to him, you know what? We got this. Stay but he, out. But he did – he did tell Pat Robertson that he has his pen and he's ready to sign it. He said, I am sitting here. I am ready to sign it. He also said, let's play this, this bite. He, he told us how he would react if this thing went down. Let's take a listen. Well, I don't even want to talk about it because I think it would be very bad. I will be very angry about it. And uh, a lot of people will be very upset. So he'd be angry. Angry. And we just heard from the vice president. Uh, by the way, let, let's, we have two sound bites from the vice president. First of all, I thought interesting as a loyal uh, Republican, uh, somebody who's friends with a lot of those folks up there, including some of those that uh, that came out against this. Uh, we also heard him echo that language about loyalty that the president did. Take a listen. As the president said just earlier today, most Republicans were loyal, terrific, and worked really hard. And there are no truer words. But... Last night, we learned that the Senate still doesn't have consensus on a bill to repeal and replace Obamacare at the same time. And then the vice president kind of laid down the line. Now that repeal and replace is dead, repeal's got to pass. President Trump and I fully support the majority leader's decision to move forward with a bill that just repeals Obamacare. So, Rick, 50 senators, 50 Republicans now serving in the United States Senate voted in 2015 on precisely what they're going to try to do now, repeal only. So I assume that means it's going to pass. Oh, I'm glad that that's your prediction. We'll write that <laughs> no, one down. No, well no, done, no. John. Yeah, for, for the record, <laughs> that was not a prediction. Oh, wait a second. It sounded like it to me. It, 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 look, they don't – there's a lot of things different about uh, – the current day versus 2015. One is who the president is. That uh, this would who actually was, who was the president back? In I 2015? believe his name was Barack Obama. I'll go check that. Well, this is this is written down. Got to get our research. Team so on that. so ha- having having a Democratic president, you know that it was being vetoed. Anna, can this you check a, that? <laughs> okay, good. Yeah, that, that was going to be vetoed. That was going to okay. be vetoed. They knew that, and it was not it was not an issue. Uh, another big difference right now. They've got someone in the White House who, who, who is not engaged in the policy of this. He is not – he wants something to pass, President Trump. He doesn't really seem to care what that is as long as he's able to say that it's repealing Obamacare. That leadership from the White House, I think, as the, as the head of the Republican Party, that is 
problematic for them right now because they don't have something to rally behind. You know that he calls the old bill mean. You know that he hasn't weighed in on these things other than to say they need to you – know, occasionally he'll say something about pre-existing conditions. But he's been all over the map policy-wise. It's hard for him to cut any political deals. He seems to be want for everything that's come forward uh, and not pin down on any specifics. And this president has often been everywhere throughout, has been nowhere on this. But, you know, but, but let, let's look at what they're proposing now seriously, uh, this idea of repeal only. The, there's a, there's a, it, it's not repeal immediately. What they voted on in 2015 was that, they would, was that Obamacare would be repealed over a two-year time period. So for the first two years, it would stay in place and then it would be repealed on the theory that Congress could get together and come up with something to replace uh, the elements that need to be replaced. Now what I am told is that what they are proposing is a three-year ramp-up. So Congress would have a full three years. Everybody that wanted hearings, everybody that wanted this, they'd have three years to come up with a plan. Uh, They're not throwing anybody off their insurance immediately. Three years. So I see policy problems with this where you've got insurance companies that have to make long-range estimates and planning that are based on nothing, no guidance at all. I see policy problems around what that bipartisanship supposedly looks like or if it even exists. About They've been talking about this for seven, eight years already, and they still can't figure it out. I also see kind of big political problems with this. What happens in three years, by the way? Anything on the calendar that starts to that starts to look intriguing? So what year would that be? That would be 2020. Yeah. Oh, is there anything that happens around is on it, or it, about 2020? Isn't that the next – that's the next presidential election? I'll ch- again, we'll check the books on this. But this is important, and it's it, uh, for members of Congress as well. Do you even have something you want to rally behind? We, we had our poll out this week, our ABC News Washington Post poll. Obamacare outpolls the alternative two to one right now. Obamacare has never been that, more that, that, popular. That's, Donald that's, Trump saved Obamacare's popularity. Our and poll had, had Obamacare over 50%. Over 50 and, and had the Republican alternative at like 21%. Yeah, it's in, it, it is an incredible turnaround. And what saved it is this. And the, the utter failure to sell this as policy, they look back, it, 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 making so many of the same mistakes that Obamacare did from, the, from the, 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 the process of it mattering and also the selling of it. They, this has been about what it won't do versus what it would do. What's the affirmative case for this? I have not seen it advanced effectively at any level, and that's why we're here today, six months in, with no achievements. But, 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 I will say, and I know that our our friend, the head of legislative affairs over at the White House, Mark Short, uh, would would echo this, that Republicans who voted for this in December of 2015, which was the last time the Senate voted on it, this repeal only, and by the way, it's not repealing everything, it leaves in place the protection for pre-existing conditions, uh, stay in your parents' insurance. Yeah, stay in your parents' yeah. insurance that you're 26. Um, but it repeals most of it. All the subsidies are gone. The Medicaid expansion is gone. All of that. The exchanges are gone. Uh, but the, the, the thing is, those Republicans that voted yes in 2015 who say they're going to be opposed now, I think that's a tough case to make. What That was a year and a half ago. What the heck is different? Obviously, there's a new president. Obviously... Uh, they knew that Obama would veto it. But is that why you voted for it for a year and a half? Because you didn't really mean it and you knew it would be vetoed? <laughs> well, and well, now that it would be signed, you're against it? What's fascinating now is – How do you explain is, that politically? Who's going to make that case? Is it the White House against these guys? Because that's what it seems right. poised to, to, be, to be right now. And, and look, th- this is a major problem for Republicans, not just because it shows that there's no real power center that's effectively moving things, not just because it means you're whiffing on your biggest legislative agenda item, not just because the first six months are going to be an offer, but you've got a Republican base, a donor base, that's a lot of them are saying – 
hey, deliver for us. We want this to happen. I mean, if you can't deliver on this, if for you, God's th- sake. Th- for seven years, almost every Republican in the country has, has been running on this. You've got the keys to the castle. Go get something done. If you Now the argument's going to have to be, we need more Republicans. Okay, fine. There's going to be a lot of donors that sit this out. When it's already a lot of writing on the wall about next year looking grim, this is going to have a trickle-down effect across races. Okay, before we get to Josh Green, uh, quickly I want to get to that, that moment in the Sean Spicer briefing. Uh, uh, this was this was about the famous meeting in Trump Tower in June of last year, and we we know that the very first story that the White House told about this and that Don Jr. said was that this was a meeting about Russian adoption and the Magnitsky Act. How does Sean pronounce it again? Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, so uh, but but we know that since that first story a week ago was put out, we saw Don Jr.'s emails. Don yeah. Jr. himself put them out, and it was quite clear that this meeting. Although they may have discussed adoption once they got in there, that was not why it was set up. In fact, the four pages of emails, there's no reference to adoption at all. Uh, it was all about dirt on Hillary Clinton, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, nobody anymore is saying that it was about primarily adoption except yesterday at the White House briefing. Listen to Sean Spicer. And there was nothing, that, as far as we know, that would lead anyone to believe that, uh, that there was anything except for a discussion about adoption of the Majinsky Act. There was nothing? Majinsky. <laughs> there was nothing? Except oh, there, the emails oh, wait, that said oh, it was about dirt on Hillary Clinton? Except what? someone in the room has said otherwise and said that this was about oppo. Except that Don Trump Jr. Has, has said that he probably did ask because that's what the pretext well, was. what about and, Donald Trump himself? Take a listen to this. This is what he said in Paris. I think from a practical standpoint, uh, most people would have taken that meeting. So anyway, Rick, uh, I, I don't know why the White House would change the story again. I don't know if that was just Sean... He wasn't at the podium for a while, so I don't know. It'd been anyway. We 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 can deal with that in a minute. But in the meantime, uh, we have our guest Josh Green, uh, senior national correspondent at Bloomberg Businessweek, and the author of the brand new book "Devil's Bargain: Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, and the Storming of the Presidency." Uh, Josh, thank you for joining us. It's great to be with you guys. Uh, you, the, the, you, you've really uh, created quite a stir with this book. Uh, congratulations! Uh, some uh, some remarkable Thanks. quotes. Some of some of these quotes, by the way, we can't read here on this family podcast. <laughs> um, you know, you know that, that, that it's actually an occupational hazard uh, when you write about Donald Trump and Steve Bannon. They're probably the two most profane people I've encountered as a reporter. It, it makes it challenging to write a, a family friendly book. <laughs> but but I I, I want to ask you before we get into the details. I'm just fascinated at the process here. You managed to get Steve Bannon to uh, to talk to you uh, rather extensively. T- tell me, how did you how did you get him? This is not a guy that that uh, that does hardly any uh, on the record interviews. How did you get him to uh, to spend time with you? What was it like? Where did you talk to him? What were these interviews like? Well, you know, Ben and I have sort of this strange star-crossed background. I, I wrote a piece when I was at the Atlantic in 2011. I went to Alaska, and I wrote a piece about Sarah Palin, who everybody in the media at the time thought was going to run for president in 2012. And I wrote kind of a contrarian piece that said, hey, you know, she actually did some good things as governor. Uh, and I got back home, and I got a call from a movie publicist saying, hey, you know, I work for this filmmaker. He's doing a film on Palin. He loved your 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 article. 
will you come to the screening? And the next day I went to this movie screening and I met Bannon. I saw Sarah Palin film, which was not very good, frankly. <laughs> uh, but Bannon himself was this kind of wild, charismatic figure. And as a magazine feature writer, you know, those are the kind of guys that I gravitate to. And so I just wound up, you know, interviewing and talking to him for a couple of years. Uh, it eventually wound up being a big uh, Business Week cover story in 2015 because I thought Bannon had a really interesting plot. Uh, to tear down Hillary Clinton. Uh, and lo and behold, he gets named to the Trump campaign. And, you know, we'd had, we'd had a relationship. I'd had, you know, 30, 40 hours of, of taped interviews with him before. And so when the election ended uh, about a month or so afterwards, publisher came to me and said, can you, can you tell us the full backstory? You know, readers want to understand how on earth Donald Trump got elected. And that's, that's really what the book attempts to do. And, uh, very interesting review of your book today in the Wall Street Journal, which takes a, a, a different angle from many of the other uh, initial reviews here. Um, it, it you know looks at basically says you provide a very favorable portrait of of Steve Bannon, a guy that's been basically described. I mean, your title, you know, Devil's Bargain. I mean, I I, I kind of guess who the devil is in this. Uh, SNL plays him as the Grim Reaper, <laughs> so I don't know which is better. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, but 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 he is a guy. You, you look back at his at his early beginnings. He's the underdog. He's kind of the scrappy guy that's, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, afflicting the comfortable, if not necessarily comforting the afflicted. Yeah. Well, well, one of the things I try to do in the book is to convey to readers the part of Bannon you can't really see from the from the public profile, which I think is what attracted Trump to him. Um, you know, I myself as author am not that favorable to Ben. I think that same review called <laughs> called the betrayal uh, subtly damning. But 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 <laughs> the point I was trying to make was that Bannon has this wild backstory where he's a deal maker, uh, a Goldman Sachs guy, a Hollywood guy who dealt with people like uh, you know Michael Ovitz and Ted Turner, you know, big shot. CEOs long before he ever encountered Trump. And so when he did encounter him, you know, he had a kind of an alpha male deal guy status that I think appealed to Trump, who tends to surround himself with obsequious lackey types. Someone told me for the book, you know, Steve was the only alpha male in Trump's universe at that time. And I think that helps to explain Bannon's early influence. So I'm fascinated by by some of the reporting you had on the on the warring behind the scenes. Particularly interested in um, in some of the, the the Bannon versus Chris Christie. The anecdote you share, the delicious anecdote from election night when uh, when when uh, Donald Trump uh, himself doesn't want to touch Chris Christie's phone <laughs> because of the possible germs on it, and kind of cuts him down to size. We're seeing Christie emerge as an interesting peripheral player. What's your sense of what that relationship's like now? And when Chris Christie comes out and and says, for instance, like he did this week, that um, what uh, Don Jr. did was potentially illegal, mm-hmm. is is that is that aimed at Bannon and the inner circle? I think, I mean, as, as I'm sure you guys know from, from having talked to the Trump campaign folks at the time, I mean, there were, there were a group of people around Trump who really did not like Chris Christie and thought he was kind of a self-promoting buffoon. Um, what I did, the opening chapter of the book kind of describes the scene inside Trump Tower on election night uh, from about five in the afternoon when, when everybody thought Trump was going to lose until 3 a.m., 
um, when he walks on stage as the president-elect. Um, but one of the stories I tell in that chapter is that uh, you know, Christie, who uh, likes to be at the center of the action and was clearly kind of trying to buddy up to Trump, had arranged with uh, President Obama, who he knew from the Hurricane Sandy aftermath. Uh, Christie had told Trump, look, you know, I've, I've, I've kind of arranged things with, with President Obama. And if you win, he's going to call my phone. I'm going to hand it to you. And what happened next, you know, Trump really kind of flashed a, a look of annoyance and kind of cursed out Christie. But a lot of the a lot of the close advisors to Trump um, were amused because Trump uh, was well known at the time to be a germaphobe. I think he actually came out and said this publicly himself. Although yes, I can't remember. yes, he did. That, that, that although was I can't remember the context. The, uh, um, the golden but, shower but allegation, kind of, remember? Exactly. Right. Oh, that's, that's what right, that's right. what it was. The golden shower memo. Can we say that on? on, on no, I'm not sure. I, 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 <laughs> we got censored. <laughs> I, no, no, no you, you're right. That's what it was. That's what it was. Um, you know, and, and so. It was, I was trying to kind of paint a little portrait of why it was that a guy like Chris Christie, who by all rights should have been a key player in Trump's administration because he came out and endorsed him before anybody else did uh, from the mainstream of the Republican Party, how it was that he managed to fall out of favor so quickly uh, and so thoroughly. And to answer your question, I, I, I do think that, that there's got to be resentment uh, burning within Chris Christie. I mean, here was a guy who thought he could be president who, you know, was on top of the world, who seemed like he was ticketed for a big shot job in the Trump administration. Now, here he is today with a 15 percent approval rating, um, basically a laughing stock, getting you know humiliated by uh, tabloids for having his family out on the beaches that he closed. I, I don't have any doubt that, that, that Christie feels some resentment to Trump and might have seen the Don Jr. episode as a chance to take a shot back and try and regain a little bit of that lost dignity. Yeah, from, from the outside. So how does Steve Bannon handle this moment? Because in some ways, it feels like this is a he, he's tailor-made for a moment like this. He's a disruptor. He'd burn it all down, right? And you have a, 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 a Congress that is not going along with the president's wishes on, on, on Obamacare. But then again, President Trump is working with Paul Ryan. With Mitch McConnell, these are not people that Steve Bannon likes. I know some very choice words that you describe Bannon having, particularly for 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 Paul Ryan. How how does Bannon navigate this moment for the president, where you have some of the Bannon esque elements inside the party? I'd say mm-hmm. who are now the impediments to the Trump agenda. Well, I think I think Trump and Bannon both got seduced to to a large extent by Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan. Once Trump got into office, as you point out in the book, Bannon is elaborately uh, and profanely outspoken about his feelings for Paul Ryan and folks like that. But, you know, once Bannon and Trump got into the White House and realized they had to legislate, uh, they also realized, I think, um, Bannon especially, that they didn't really have a legislative agenda. They didn't really have any idea what they were going to do. How are they going to put some of these policies into practice? And so while we saw that early flurry of, of initial executive or, orders, the travel ban, and a lot of that stuff I think was masterminded um, by Bannon and his nationalist ilk in the White House, if you look at the legislative agenda, it's pretty much what Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell wanted to do. And I think Bannon especially got seduced by Ryan, who is in favor of a border-adjusted tax, which uh, Bannon told me back in February or March was something he was very much in favor of. He thought it was the most nationalist, feasible policy, and that this could be the foundation for Trump's tax reform. And so Trump and Bannon and everybody else in the White House 
threw in with this idea of starting out the administration by repealing Obamacare, uh, which threatened to take away health care from a lot of Trump's base voters. And as we saw with the collapse of the Senate bill, it just doesn't look like that's going to work out. Yeah, the, the, I, I agree with you. One of the fascinating things uh, watching Bannon is the way he seems to have made in in many ways kind of a common cause with with Paul Ryan. I mean, your book, I don't know how how much of this can I say on on the podcast, Rick? What, I think we can get away our, with anything, can we? Uh cuz cuz you describe uh you say that Bannon uh and can you explain to me when this quote would be from you 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 say that mm-hmm. Bannon described Ryan as a limp blank mother blank can I, can I, is that am I am I safe there? Yes, that uh, born in a petri dish at the Heritage Foundation. We got to believe yeah. Heritage. When when, yeah, when when did he say that? Here, here's the kind of thing we go. So back in the spring of 2016, it became clear by about March or April that Donald Trump was going to win the GOP nomination, and people were in shock. And there was a lot of talk among the Washington, D.C. establishment of a brokered convention, and could they deny him, uh, you know, delegates this way and that way. And one of the scenarios that was popular for about two or three weeks was that uh, Republicans would manage to deadlock the convention, and Paul Ryan would come in as this white knight candidate uh, and, 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 and push out Donald Trump and run as the Republican nominee against Hillary Clinton in the fall. And this was Bannon's nightmare. He viewed Ryan as kind of uh, the sum of all things evil on on the right side of the aisle. He was for free trade. He was a globalist. He was a pointy-headed policy intellectual. Uh, and he, he had no he regard at all for the kind of Breitbart News. Yeah, the, the Breitbart News populist economic crowd that Bannon represented. So I was actually in the Breitbart embassy. This is the Breitbart headquarters, where they used to be headquartered on Capitol Hill, reporting a story about the Bannon-Breitbart effort to fight back against Paul Ryan uh, in his potential efforts to kind of run this white knight candidacy. And so I was sitting there, and Bannon was just fulminating and raging, you know, on the record into my tape recorder about Paul Ryan. That's where that quote came from. Uh, and as I see in the book, it's kind of a funny story. The pressure on Ryan not to do this became so intense that about a day or two later, he came out, he held a press conference, he said, look, I am not going to do this. I'm not going to try and steal the nomination. And so I emailed Bannon to say, hey, man, it looks like it's not going to happen. The story's off. Immediately fires back an email, says, what are you talking about? This is a trick. Don't throw away your notes. (laughs) Ryan is still going to run for president. Uh, You know, and it just I think it gives you a good glimpse into Bannon's mindset and the kind of paranoid hyper-aggressive guy that he is. So six months in, two questions. Has Trump changed Washington more than he's been changed? Or And 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 the same question for Bannon. Has he changed Washington more than he himself has changed? I think that Trump and Bannon have both changed Washington to a great extent, but not in quite the way that they intended to. Trump has come in and smashed all sorts of political norms. I mean, he's almost created a slipstream for Mitch McConnell and Republicans to go in and and smash their own norms. I mean, the idea that that the Senate would pass a, such a far-ranging health care bill or try to pass, you know, without an open committee process, without hearings, it's just absolutely unprecedented. And it's hard for me to believe that that kind of thing would have happened under any kind of pre-Trump normal 
circumstances. I think the problem for both of those guys is they really thought they were going to come in. I think Bannon used the phrase, I think I quote this in the book, that they were going to employ a shock and awe strategy. No, no irony there, right? A shock and awe <laughs> strategy to come into Washington and absolutely blow up the establishments of both parties. They were going to ram through this populist agenda. They were going to do all sorts of things, uh, not understanding that legislating and dealing with Congress is an entirely different animal uh, than campaigning, than reality television, than being a, a, a dissident outsider uh, publication like Breitbart News. And so I think these six months uh, have been a real education for both of them. So uh, last last question, Josh. I, I've I've um, I've been into Steve's uh, office uh, in the uh, in the West Wing. You know, he's got that uh, kind of kind of a, a small office off the same suite that has uh, Wright's Priebus's office. And by the way, those two seem to have gotten along too. That, that, that that's another mm-hmm. interesting uh, thing. They, they they seem to have formed an alliance, which I would not have predicted early on. Um, and he's got, of course, the the famous whiteboard where he lists all of the promises. Uh, that, that Donald Trump made during the campaign with check marks against those that he has kept so far. And, he, and you see on there, I was there you know, uh, not long after they uh, decided not to declare a China currency manipulator. And there, you know, one of the big promises, declare China a currency manipulator. He doesn't whitewash anything. They're all there on his whiteboard, all the promises, mm-hmm. including the ones he didn't keep. But what is your sense on Bannon himself in that building? How long do you think he stays? Is he... Is he a temporary guy, or is he going to be there all four years or eight? I, mean, I no, think but. I think Bannon is. You're going to have to pry him out of there with a crowbar, and maybe Trump will, and and maybe Jared Kushner or Gary Cohn or somebody else will manage to maneuver him out of the White House. But but Bannon is, I think, despite his crazy man portrayal, pretty self aware on a lot of levels, and he understands that. No president except Donald Trump would ever have anyone like Steve Bannon in a position of power in the White House. Trump is, I think, as Bannon himself put it during the campaign, not to me, but he called him a flawed vessel or a flawed vehicle uh, for these nationalist ideas. Uh, For better or worse, Trump is the guy that Bannon is stuck with, and he knows that. And he knows that if he's going to be able to implement any of his ideas, it's going to have to be through Trump. So, you know, as, as part of the reporting for this book, I talked to a lot of conservatives in and around the White House. And the guy who had the quote that summed this up best for me, I think, was Ken Cuccinelli, uh, former Virginia Republican, now runs a, a conservative Senate group. He said, uh, you know, if they come and line up, the firing squad comes to line up all the Trump advisors against the wall, everybody else is going to run. Wrights Priebus and those guys are going to run. Steve Bannon is going to stay. And I think that's absolutely accurate and a good insight into the kind of guy that Bannon is. Yeah, so I, I would I would say I agree. I think that I think Steve Bannon's there for the duration. I think he is there. And, yeah, and, 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 and you know the other the other point to make about him too, which I think should be clear, but I mean he really is uh, almost shameless and fearless and unembarrassed. Well, you've seen White House spokesmen basically cower and go into hiding because they don't want to be out there saying and spinning things for Donald Trump that are going to cost them their own integrity. Um, you know, Bannon, uh, quite famously, is a honey badger, and he, he is the ultimate loyalist. I mean, he'll go out there and he'll go down uh, fighting one way or the other 
doing what Trump wants to do. I do wonder, as somebody who, who you know, spent a lot of uh, time and stories in this book document his career, if Bannon and Trump both might not have been better off if Bannon were better able to stand up to Trump and to confront him rather than just being kind of a loyal soldier and henchman who goes out and attacks his enemies. And your point about the alpha male, and maybe that, that President Trump and, and whether whether Jared and Gary Cohen realize this or not, that they can't afford to lose him given the power that they would create on the outside. If he were to be able to channel Trumpism in another direction against Trump, that may be more than they'd even want to risk. It's another argument for him sticking around for a while. All right, Josh Green, thank you very much for joining us. Once again, the author of the book, Devil's Bargain, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, and the Storming of the Presidency. Talk to you again soon, man. All right, thanks, guys. Thanks. Uh, that's that's good stuff, man. Well, he, look, he, 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 I had this mental image of he, he, under the same analogy that he uses here. So, do they call the office a lair? I mean, is this the, <laughs> where, or where, where, where he's now brainstorming from inside the White House? I, I am struck by the seduction of uh, of Bannon and, and Trump. They came in with a whole lot of ideas, but that's not a legislative agenda. Right. Uh, and Paul Ryan made a bargain as well in deciding to embrace Trumpism uh, and, and President Trump. Uh, and they, th- there was a potential power there of melding the Republican establishment and the governing coalitions with the Trump White House and what Trumpism empowered. We're seeing that fray. Actually, we're seeing it split apart six months in. The fact that Republicans will have nothing to show for this. I, I-, I kind of have a firmer sense on how Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell respond to this. They are, they've won some. They've lost some. They move on. I don't know what Trump does. And, 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 does he lash I, out? Does he, it, does he exact, you know, revenge? Right. Does he betray him? Which means primary campaigns against some of these guys, which means— And we've always seen him go after, you know, the, the, there's this political this story, you know, about Jeff Flake yep. and about how he's met with potential primary challengers. And the Dean Jeff Heller Flake. ad. That, and Jeff Flake's not even one of them defied on health care. That's right. I mean, we, like, saw the, we saw the Heller ad already emerge. It seems so, like it's prime for that kind of intra-party warfare— uh, where you remember that President Trump wasn't a Republican until he decided to run for president. Yep. Unbelievable. All right. Well, Rick, that is it for this day's edition of Powerhouse <laughs> Politics. We'll see if we'll be back with an emergency podcast later in the week. But thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon.